0: On this week's 51%, we speak with sociologists Amanda Freeman and Lisa Dotson about their new book, Getting Me Cheap, highlighting some of the women who fuel some of America's most essential but low-paying industries. You know, this is a different
1: America that you're actually coming into contact with all the time.
0: We also hear from the Barbara Lee Family Foundation on how some female candidates fared in the midterm elections. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%.
2: I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie The whole world was a movie back then I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Lita. I wasn't really in it I didn't really get it
0: You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us, I'm Jesse King. Today, we're continuing a conversation that we actually started last week on the gender divide in our workforce. Last week, US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo shared her plans to promote and support women in STEM and the trades. Because fun fact, Raimondo says many women in fields like construction actually earn the same solid wages as their male peers. No gender pay gap. Except for the fact that many women still don't get the same number of hours as their co-workers. Hence, Fernando's push for change in these fields. But still, there's opportunity in these skilled industries. But if we look at where women are working right now, women are a primary source of labor for some of the country's most essential but low-paying service industries. Think restaurants, healthcare, housekeeping, child care, and so on. We rely on these women, many of them women of color, to maintain our own lifestyles. But as our guests today will tell us, they're often left with the short end of the stick. Dr. Lisa Dodson is research professor emerita at Boston College, while Dr. Amanda Freeman is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Hartford in Connecticut. Their new book is Getting Me Cheap, How Low-Wage Work Traps Women and Girls in Poverty. Freeman says they've spent the past 10 years interviewing hundreds of working poor women, many of them single mothers, to understand the impact these industries have on not only the women themselves, but on their children
1: we looked at women who are working in some of them are working in other people's homes right doing domestic kind of work and then also overnight shifts in factories or fast food um so a lot of the the choosing of the job right would be around kids schedules you know a lot of the parents would work overnight because the kids would be sleeping of course like we would tell say to them well then when do you sleep you know kind of thing when do you rest um so a lot of the choosing of the jobs yeah. but then also the lack of ability to succeed in the jobs you know especially if you're a single parent many of the women we spoke with had either children with special needs or um, you know in terms of health care or you know, learning challenges. And and so every time they're called out of work because the kid needs them. So it's sort of like almost having to sacrifice those jobs or, or cycle through jobs, I think is a term that we use in the book. And then, you know, never being able to climb the ladder sort of up and out. And then, you know, many of the women that we spoke with were trying to go back to school or pursue some kind of advancement in one way or another, and then just finding themselves unable to do all of these different things at once.
3: Yeah. There's a lot of patching together different pieces of work, too, because you're trying to work it around a child's schedule, but then you don't have a full-time job, you don't get any job benefits, you know, even aside from low wages. A lot of these jobs are just, they're really precarious. They're really not reliable jobs. So You know, the just incredibly creative patchwork efforts, we are always astonished by the tenacity, the determination and, you know, kids at the center. This might seem like a pretty broad or basic question to start off, but how did we
0: get here? Why is there such a gender divide in these jobs? And is this a situation where the overall gender pay gap might apply? Do we know if men in the same positions are being paid any more or less?
3: I mean, overall, we have a really low, you know, minimum wage, it hasn't changed in 13 years. Um, And even before that, it was like a decade before it had changed as well. And a lot of the jobs tend to be I mean, it's kind of job segregation, women tend to be in certain job sectors. For instance, nursing home jobs and child care jobs and elder care jobs, they're somewhere between 90 and 95 percent women. All of those jobs I just named, there's a greater, greater demand for them, particularly sort of home care and elder care and all of those sort of care work jobs. And men are just not a big part of those jobs. I mean, it's really segregated. And this is a growing part of the labor market. Um, I think that's probably the more powerful part of it is the gender segregation based on the kind of jobs. Retail jobs, women dominate as well, but it's um, not nearly as great as, as care jobs. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things that Amanda and I talk a lot about is how, you know, women who are trying to have good jobs, you know, do have maybe graduate degrees. They desperately need care services. And often they're purchasing all kinds of other services in order to go to work, in order to meet the demands, you know. But a lot of times they're quite literally standing on the shoulders of low-income women who themselves are raising children, making just terrible wages. Right. I mean, globally, right, care work is just devalued.
1: I think, what is the 75% of unpaid care work Is done by women globally. And then, I mean, also just the idea that we don't value or count mothering as work, I think is also certainly at play here. Um, And so you see, you know, several women in the book are working like in the childcare industry specifically because that's the only way that they can kind of have care for their kids and be working. I think on average in the United States, a childcare worker makes around $10 an hour. Does that sound right, Lisa?
3: Yeah, I think 10, 11 something. Yeah, really low poverty wages. Yeah. One of the issues we really call out in the book and, and heard conversation about from some of the people we interviewed was how to kind of bring these in solidarity with one another, you know, how to, how to bring women who absolutely desperately need support in order to have the kind of jobs that, you know, they're good jobs, decent jobs, but also be supportive of all these women who really make it possible. So how do we
0: bridge that gap then and get people together to address the issue? Right.
1: I mean, we we kind of talk about policy solutions. Um, So, you know, universal child care is something we've been talking a lot about, you know, renewing the COVID corrections, I would call them, to the child tax credit. But then also just, I mean, I think you kind of touched on, if you have low-income women working in your home, right, just... In terms of often there's that relationship between mothers and even in the book, we do talk to some affluent moms who want to do right by the care workers in their home. I mean, making sure that they have paid time off, making sure that they have you know the labor protections that you would enjoy or expect in an in, in outside employment, and then also just knowing the policies, right? Like we talked about, you know, if you're a professional working for a corporation, you might know the policies that apply to you, but are you aware of the policies that apply to, you know, at PepsiCo, for instance, the people who are working in the bottling factories? I don't actually know the policy at Pepsi. I shouldn't have used that as an example. Um, But you might not know that even within the same corporation, the hourly workers get very different benefits than the salaried employees do. So I mean, I think that's an example of, you know, if this is your the place that you work, you could be advocating for people of all different income levels in your place of employment. And
0: and you should be. We've touched on how this is impacting women, but what about their daughters? How does this make life different for children in low income families compared to kids in more affluent households?
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that we have just heard um, a lot of everywhere, is the degree to which parents who are making poverty wages, you know, just unsustainable wages, have to rely on children in ways that affluent families just, it would never occur to them that they need to rely on children in that way. Um, And, you know, we found those also to be very gendered. So a lot of young girls or a lot of women we were interviewing recalled how as very young girls. They were contributing to doing care work in their homes, different kinds of family labor. And a, and a very common one was that they were taking care of younger siblings. And when I say taking care of them, that included, we, we met women who, even in middle school, they were taking off days from school to take care of a toddler because mom had no sick time in the kind of low-wage job she was in. So it was pull your kid out of school to take care of a baby, or lose your job. We saw these kind of almost institutionalized ways in which girls were stepping into women's shoes, grown-up shoes, in order to contribute to the family. And in a sense, subsidizing these terrible wages. You know, They were trying to help make up for what the labor market was simply getting away with, which is these very, very low, low wage jobs. And, you know, with that, with taking care of younger children, it's an enormous responsibility. You know, it's an emotional responsibility. You're using up your time and and you're focusing on something other than your homework or your own kind of peer group. I think that we really noticed how it in some ways made very strong girls capable of making decisions that were very thoughtful. It was important to women to say to us, we had a very strong family. We had a lot of kinship in our family and loyalty to one another, to the siblings in the family. But they also gave up a lot. And they gave up in ways that really hurt them in terms of education and and jobs.
1: Learning that they were responsible to care for their families happening so young and then almost like sacrificing what we think of as their future, right? I know like Lisa and I talked a lot about like middle class and affluent families and girlhood, like this movement of empowering young women, you know, to be leaders in sports and STEM and just how you know it's totally missing in a family where it's like 911 just to care for one another so that the ship doesn't sink
0: a little earlier you mentioned talking to women who tried to aspire to other careers that would have provided a more decent income did those efforts usually pan out yes yeah, so we
1: talked to many women who are trying to pursue college education, either to go back or to start, Um, and then also in the trades, so um, trying to enter apprenticeship programs, so routes to better jobs. But we sort of know none of these avenues are really, you know, set up to accommodate parents. And so we just saw obstacle after obstacle, really. You know, a lot of times it means they have to take longer, especially to complete college degrees. Childcare was a big roadblock to women in in the trades because the hours are different and often don't go along with the nine to five of childcare centers when they're able to find a spot in a childcare center. So it seemed like they were trying all these different avenues um, and often going back and back after getting kind of kicked out or dropped out of a scholarship program. Um, so we, we didn't have, you know, a lot of great outcomes in terms of that. I mean, it's time limited data, so you don't necessarily see if it's going to take a longer time. I mean, I always think they the women we speak to are so resilient in terms of uh-huh. like keeping going back and going back. A lot of them say to us, you know, when my kids get older, this isn't something that I'm going to return to and do for myself. So that kind of being always in the back of their mind, listen, if I can't do it right now while well, the kids are young. I mean, I think of that even, you know, with my own kids, it's harder to do things when kids are young. Um, so you can kind of plan or or put it off. But then, you know, you just hope that at some point they do get to focus
0: on themselves and, and do it. With the fall of Roe v. Wade over the summer, I mean, you're going to see more women who are giving birth to children that they hadn't necessarily planned to
3: give birth to Can that have an impact here going forward? I mean, this is historically, we have data on this for decades now and and before Roe v. Wade, even that women who have money or even can borrow money, you know, can turn to family or whatever, if they know they should not have another child or have a child, it's not the right time and they'll find a way to get an abortion. The women who are least likely to be able to do that um, are women living in states that are, you know, have shut off this opportunity and now the whole country, you know, is threatened by that. Um, They don't have the money and they can't travel to another state. A lot of them work in jobs where you don't have time off. I mean, literally zero time off. And often the women we've talked to you know, who we didn't ask them questions directly about this, but they knew they should not have another child. And so it's just very clear that the families and the women who are going to be most hurt by this change will be those that are low wage, that are the the, the women that we've been interviewing, you know, who just don't have the same options, don't have the flexibility. Well, thank you both for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, Lastly,
0: what do you hope readers most take away from your book? I guess two things for me,
1: I'm not sure what you think about this, Lisa. I mean, one, just that, you know, this is a different America that you're actually coming into contact with all the time, right? Because you're ordering your package from Amazon, you're getting your coffee at Dunkin' or Starbucks, um, and, and you just might not think of, that person as a mother with care responsibilities and responsibility in this economy, which, you know, we're all interacting with all the time. So I guess heightened awareness, and then also to feel responsible, right? Some responsibility for participating in this system that is so oppressing um, these women and girls in this country, you know, one of the richest countries on the planet. So to feel in solidarity with these women and willing to sort of step forward and advocate for them. You know, I think our last chapter is really about feeling called up um, to do something about it, right? And we do, it does feel like politically, we're in a moment where maybe this is possible more than it has been in the past. Um, So we like to, to say if the book can be a tool, you know, to generate conversation, Um, that leads to social change, I mean, that's the the best thing for us that the book could do.
0: Doctors Amanda Freeman and Lisa Dodson are the authors of Getting Me Cheap, How Low-Wage Work Traps Women and Girls in Poverty. It's out now through the New Press. Earlier this year, we spoke with Amanda Hunter, executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, for a preview of some of the biggest races featuring women in November's midterm elections – The midterms have now come and gone, although we're still awaiting results from a few key races, with Democrats maintaining control of the Senate and Republicans successfully flipping the House. Shortly before our initial broadcast here, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she will give up her Democratic leadership post in the next Congress, ending a 20-year run to make way for what she called the next generation of leadership. But female candidates made gains on both sides of the aisle in several statewide races. For example, here in New York, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul won a full term and became the first woman elected to the seat. Former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a Republican, will become the first female governor of Arkansas. In a nearby Massachusetts, Democratic Attorney General Maura Healey is set to become the state's first female openly lesbian governor. The Barbara Lee Family Foundation has particularly been watching gubernatorial races over the past year. I checked back in with Amanda Hunter shortly after the midterms for her reaction.
4: I think the most exciting thing for us as an organization that has really focused on women running for executive office for more than 20 years is that although we don't have all the results of the races yet, we know that there will be a record 12 women serving as governor. And that is a significant increase over our previous record of just nine. So that's important because we know from our research that voters can have what we call an imagination barrier. It can be hard for them to picture women at the highest levels of government if they've never seen it. And now we're going to have 12 very visible women leading states, so that's very exciting. One barrier breaker that was so exciting for us to witness this past election was the notion of two women being elected to the corner office, which we couldn't at first believe had it happened before when we started looking at this possibility. But in Arkansas and in Massachusetts, a woman governor and lieutenant governor were elected. And that's notable because we actually heard feedback from some voters questioning, oh, I don't know about two women together. And that goes back to the imagination barrier because two men have been elected to the corner office for centuries in this country.
0: That's true. And your foundation did a study this year, taking a look at what happens when two women run against each other. To remind those who may have missed our first conversation, what kind of dynamic does that set up?
4: Sure. We were really excited to study the dynamics of two women running against each other because it is happening more and more regularly now. And in this past election cycle in gubernatorial races, there were actually five elections where the major party candidates were both women. So that shows us that both voters and traditional party structures on both sides of the aisle have finally realized that women are successful candidates to run on the top of the ticket. But what we found in this research, I had expected that when two women run against each other, it would cancel out gender bias. And we found that it actually amplifies it in many cases, that voters demanded to know why either woman was qualified when two women ran against each other. And voters still very, very closely scrutinized women's appearance and their clothing and their tone of voice. And likability was still a non-negotiable. We've seen all along in our research that voters say they won't vote for a woman if they don't like her, but they will vote for a man if they believe he's qualified. So even when you take a man out of the equation, Voters are still holding women to a different and higher standard against another woman.
0: The overturning of Roe v. Wade and the issue of abortion has been cited as a possible reason that people got out to vote this time around on both sides of the aisle. But some Democrats have credited it with stopping the red wave, so to speak. Do you agree? What do you make of this?
4: It definitely seems that the overturning of Roe v. Wade activated a number of women voters. We heard that at the beginning of 2022, women had reported being burned out and avoiding politics just because even though they said they believed that the midterms would be one of the most consequential elections of their lifetime, they just couldn't take the stress and the fighting anymore. It seems that Dobbs may have cause women to get over that reticence and to become more activated but i think it's a really a, it's a bigger picture and your podcast is the perfect title for this because a lot of pundits still talk about women voters as a special interest group when really we are more than half of the voting population so i think there needs to be a change in the conversation when we
0: talk about women voting well lastly, what was your main takeaway watching the midterms? And what is the foundation, I guess, keeping an eye on going forward? First, just
4: not to discount women voters and not to treat women voters as a special interest group. Certainly women are not a monolithic voting group and women vote differently in a variety of for a variety of reasons, but let's talk about women like we are civic members of the population and not some exotic species that's going out to the polls. I think that's one. One thing that we've been watching over the past couple of days that might be of interest to you is how Speaker Pelosi keeps getting questions about when she's retiring, but Mitch McConnell, who is not that different of an age is not getting those same questions. So we're watching that dynamic closely. And also the fact that in so many states, either at the congressional or Senate level or at the gubernatorial level, and even at the statewide level, women were at the top of the ticket. And it's a good reminder that women are strong, successful candidates. And as my boss Barbara Lee always says, now that we've seen this progress, we're never not going to see it. We're not going back. And personally, we're based in Massachusetts my elementary school niece and nephew were asking at dinner the Sunday before the election, who was voting for the girl for governor. And while that's really cute, it's also a powerful reminder that they and their generation will never remember a time where a girl was not on the ballot for governor and not being sworn in as governor in a couple of months. And that's where we will finally start to see some change around long held stereotypes.
0: Amanda Hunter is the executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, a nonpartisan organization working to advance women's political equality and representation. You can learn more at their website, barbaraleefoundation.org. Before we go, we're going to take a few minutes to look beyond the U.S. In Iran, thousands of young people continue to protest the Islamic regime's treatment of women, even as the government works to crack down on protesters. According to an Iranian news agency, at least one person was preliminarily sentenced to death in connection with the protests earlier this month. Here in New York, college professors and activists are trying to raise awareness and draw support from America's youth. Our associate producer, Jody Cowan, has more.
5: On September 16, 2022, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, died while in the custody of the Iranian government's morality police. Amini was detained after allegedly violating the country's strict dress code for women by not wearing a hijab in compliance with government standards. While the official statement from authorities was that Amini suffered a heart attack and fell into a coma, eyewitnesses say that she was beaten severely and died as a result of abuse from the police. In the hours following her death, a series of protests started, leading to some of the largest anti-government demonstrations in Iran since 2009's Green Movement. Protesters called for an end to the Islamic Republic and decades of gender discrimination, with many women burning their hijabs in the street.
6: Iranian women poured into the streets with the slogan that is worldwide accepted. Women, life, freedom. That's what they're asking for. There are a variety of ways that they have been supported. Many, many celebrities have cut their hair, which is a symbol of this um, movement. And many others have gone out and spoken uh, to people, including Oprah and, and um, uh, Kim Kardashian and so forth. And um, I think that it's about time that students support the people in Iran.
5: Mahmoud Karimi Hakak, a native Iranian and professor of creative arts at Siena College in Loudonville, New York, organized an event to spur local support of the protest movement on U.S. soil. The on-campus lecture showcased two informational sessions on the past and current events of Iran, with the first featuring Eli Konchkov, a human rights activist based in Washington, D.C. Konchkov shared her history of growing up and living under an oppressive government regime.
6: In the laws of the Islamic regime, a mother cannot marry off her daughter. Only her father has that right. When I was getting married... I had to ask my uncle, my father's brother, to sign on my father's behalf because my father couldn't be in Iran. My father never walked me down the aisle. My mother was not seen as enough to sign for her own daughter's marriage certificate. To this day, my wedding day is one of the saddest days of my life. But today, these young girls and boys in Iran are fighting, not just for themselves, but for all the women before and after them they seek three simple words, woman, life, freedom. These three words that transcends Iran and is in fact what every woman in the world has screamed for throughout history. And today, all they ask is that we stand with them and be their voice for the outside world.
5: Dr. Abuzar Kaboudin is a computational scientist and staff fellow at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Kaboudiyan discussed his family's generational trauma at the hands of the Iranian government, but overall he's hopeful about the movement of young people rising up in opposition to oppression. You see the brutality and you feel sadness and you feel pain and you feel anger. And at the same time, you see the courage of the people, what they are fighting for, and that brings to you hope. We have a poetry in Fosse that says, you cut the branches, what will you do with the buddings that happened the next spring. Professor Karimi Hakak hopes young Americans will help keep the momentum going. Jennifer Ushka, a senior psychology major at Siena, said the sessions had a profound impact on her.
0: I think so much of us especially here on this campus feel so disconnected to it because a lot of the stories we hear are through our screens, so it's hard to put faces and hearts and impact into our one-on-one experience. Having these speakers really brings it home. These were families, these are daughters, these are People, these are whole individuals who have lives and loved ones who are scared
6: for them to get home.
5: Afterward, Eli Kanchkov reinforced the need for awareness and a strong sense of solidarity among those on campus.
6: We wanted people, especially people who are of the younger generation, the same peers of the girls and boys in Iran who are out on the streets, to be able to understand on an emotional level why they're doing this. And with that, hopefully they can be their voice, they can do their part about sharing the story, sharing the news, and talking to their representatives about it.
5: Now in their eighth week of nationwide uprisings, as many as are reported 15,000 protesters have been detained and are potentially facing execution as the Iranian court has started to hand out death penalty sentences for demonstrators in the streets. Thousands more are still uprising across the capital city of Tehran and rallying behind the call, women, life, freedom. For 51%, this is Jody Cowan. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Fifty One Percent. Fifty One Percent is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. It's produced and hosted by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Chartock, and our theme is "Lolita" by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks again to Drs. Amanda Freeman and Lisa Dodson and Amanda Hunter for joining us this week. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at WAMCpodcast.org. There you can find episodes new and old and links to everything you need to know. We hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I
2: was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. I lost my cool somewhere along the way, that night and on the hallway, I had to learn how to look away, I lost my cool.